The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. I feel I have an advantage over you. I'm a Scottish Presbyterian, so social distancing is my normal um, <laughs> mode of doing things. So I'm just glad the rest of the world is catching up. Um, always disturbing that verse in the Bible, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> but It's interesting what we're looking at today. I'm, I'm, I was in three minds uh, yesterday thinking about this and coming in today. And I've decided to go with the more dangerous option and consider this whole question of what it means to be a social being, humans being a social being, uh, in the light of what's happening at the moment. So one of the concerns that I would have about uh, all of this is the... Sorry. Okay. Is the extent to which... People think that we can live online. So I have 5,000 friends, uh, but I don't have 5,000. Of course I don't have 5,000 friends. I think uh, some of the tools that we've been given are quite remarkable in terms of being able to communicate. But I think this is actually really important in this whole thing. God made us in a particular way that we need contact with people which includes physical contact. So, for example, I'm giving this talk, and according to all the best sociological analysis, 70% of how I communicate is in posture, tone, and everything else. That cannot be conveyed in terms of how we uh, relate to people. So, I think in terms of all of this, let me just give you one other example before we, we go on to look just at the passage. My mother is 85, she has numerous pre-existing conditions. So I phoned up my sister and said, what are you going to do? Your husband has not been well. Are you going to visit mom? And she said, yes, of course I'm going to visit mom. And I said, why? And she said, David, if she gets a cold, she's going to die. Um, you know, we would never visit her if, if you know, coronavirus is irrelevant to her. And I, my sister had been uh, in charge of a nursing home, and she said that there were 13 people one month, who all died because of the flu. So, of course, now that would be absolute headline news. Then nobody bothered. And so what she's saying is, she said, I phoned up my mother then and said, you know, Mom, if the government orders you to stay at home for four months, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to go out. And I know my mother. I've been trying to get my mother to stay at home. And I, if I can't get it, there's no way the government's going to. And she said, what, what am I going to do? She said, I'm going to die anyway. She said, I don't want to die alone. And that phrase has really stuck in my head as I was looking at um, all of this. It was not good for the man to be alone. I, I think we, each of us should have that uh, verse in our heads as we think about people and, and as we connect with different people. There, there, is a, there are all different kinds of epidemics, if you like. 
One is loneliness. We did some work around the church I go to, St. Thomas's, and uh, in, in North Shore. And we were looking at what possible social problems could there be in North Shore for us, for the church to seek to alleviate. You know what was number one, like by a million miles, all the rest insignificant, loneliness. It's like the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? And loneliness is a dreadful thing. Um, you know, we talk about social isolation. I was in social isolation for several months. Um, severely ill, any catching infections, left, right, and center, anyone coming in to see me would infect me. Um, being alone was one of the hardest things to, to cope with. And I think in our current crisis, right now, we're getting what I call the Christmas phase, which is great, two weeks at home. I can binge on Netflix and get takeaway. That will work for a maximum, I think, of four weeks. And then after six weeks, I think we're going to find ourselves in a situation of almost social unrest with a lot of people. Because human beings are social beings. If you can't go to the pub, if you can't go to church, if you can't meet with people, then you're going to find yourself really cut off. And that's what this account is. I think that the account here, that it was not good for the, the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. <coughs> First, if you like, social relationship that humanity ever had was marriage. And uh, marriage was given for a purpose. The Catholic Church sums it up rather neatly by saying it was for uh, mutual fellowship. It was, it was for procreation. And it was for the good of society. It's the best way that children can be brought up. The state generally doesn't make a good parent. And that first and most basic of relationships has been the foundation of all societal relationships since then. So that's why, going back to uh, another inverted commas crisis or societal thing, which I'm sure someday we will get back to relatively soon, the whole argument about what marriage actually is, is hugely significant. It's also why the whole argument about what a human being actually is, is also massively significant. This series is considering what it is to be human. And I was going to spend a much more time on this, which I'm not now going to, but on what it is to be human. Fundamentally, it's male and female. Now, let's take exceptions. And, and, and I would always say, be careful that exceptions make bad rules. So, for example, intersex, nonetheless, even with intersex, which is 0.01% of the population, you still find that they have XX or XY chromosomes. You don't allow exceptions, if you like, to make policy or, or as a general rule. So as a general rule, what we're saying is human beings are male or female. And that actually is... Um, significant in different ways. Now, there's an element of truth in saying that you, you have the, the biology and saying that gender is different. It's different, but it's highly connected. And what I mean by gender, how we describe gender, I don't accept that gender is a social construct, as our queer theory advocates would say, but say that expressions of gender can be societal. Um, so let me give you an example from France, my hitchhiking days. I was hitchhiking around France, and uh, basically I had no money left. 
And I remembered I'd had a French pen pal. I only wrote her two letters. But I thought, well, that's close enough. Um, so me and my friend, I phoned up my French pen pal. I found her name. Oh, David, David, I sent my father for you. I said, so you come and stay with us. And I thought, great, we'll get a meal for the night. I didn't know that she actually lived in a castle, in a chateau. It was unbelievable. So we went, and there's the chateau. And um, he, he lived with his wife, his daughters, his mother, his granny, and his servants. And so we had this, we went from having just a, a roll of bread one day to having this nine-course meal, typically French. Each one brought out half an hour to eat. So, I mean, like, <coughs> it's like three and a half hours, four hours eating. It was utterly wonderful. And then uh, I thought, well, we better do something. So I got up and said, um, thank you very much. Um, we'll do the dishes. And he burst out laughing. He went, oh, <laughs> ah, good joke, David. No, 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 no man does dishes, only women. <laughs> I thought, you better tell my mother. <laughs> um, you know, that's a, that's a gender stereotype. You know, only men can be lawyers. It's a gender stereotype. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about gender stereotypes. <laughs> but we are saying... Along with um, most of my feminist allies, that being a woman actually means something. Have you ever noticed something in terms of this whole debacle about uh, transgender and toilets and so on? Men's toilets don't get renamed. It's women's toilets that get renamed. It's women's sport that's primarily affected. It's women that are fundamentally being undermined by all of this. So what it means to be male and to be female, I, I can't... Um, we can ask questions about that and discuss that. I think it's a very deep and a very profound question. But unquestionably, there is a distinction. And it is a significant distinction. It's a foundational distinction within humanity, not just a societal one. So, human beings, we are social beings. We're made for one another. Most human beings will find themselves in a, a, a marriage relationship. A sexual relationship is not good enough. Um, for us to behave like rabbits, it would utterly destroy society. My, I'm, my, my background is in history, and I think I can say this with total confidence. I cannot think of a single empire or great nation which did not fall apart when it gave up on sexual morality. Um, I, I, I think that was a major cause in the decline of the Roman Empire, and plague as well, by the way, which is also relevant. Um, I think it was... You, you look at uh, Saigon, if you'd looked at Saigon in the 1950s, early 1960s, you would have realized how corrupt a place it was, and it would have caused you to question Berlin in the 1920s and early 1930s, and so on. So I think that sex, in, in terms of how many in our society perceive it almost as a recreational thing, is wrong. Sex as an expression of the most fundamental relationship that humanity has is right. That's the Christian view, the sacred view of that. In terms of societal things, there also is a spin-off, though, because Western culture quickly developed post-Second World War into the nuclear family being the dynamic. Um, and I think we're going to find that that has been a fundamental error. Uh, in fact... In working class areas in my, my home city of Dundee, if it wasn't for grannies, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, the extended family is quite something. Those of you who belong to cultures or, or know of cultures where that is important, you'll, you'll understand that. Now, 
The family can be oppressive. All good institutions can cause harm. But it can also be absolutely uh, wonderful. And I think of that, and you think of it even in terms of practical things like, let me go back to my parents. If my parents were on their own, then they would cost the state an absolute fortune. The state would have to send in people to do their home. The state, But as it is, my sister, my brother-in-law, their friends, uh, my brother, my, my daughter, my gr- kids will go up and, and help and stay. And as a result, my parents are able to stay in their own home, which is hugely significant. I think it, the, the, the relationships that we have are, are absolutely vital. Now, let me back off that a little bit and say, well, are, are you saying almost that you can't be fully human if you're not married or if you don't have those very close relationships? What I would say is this. Jesus wasn't married and he was fully human. So that is not true. However, what I would say is that all of us were made to be social beings, even introverts like me. Um, there, there's, you kind of, you want, you know, uh, for me being, if you put me on a desert island, island with a lot of books, uh, I'd be pretty happy for a long time, but even I would occasionally want to meet somebody. Um, there are other people who are much more vivacious and who like meeting people all the time. But the bottom line is, all of us, all of us need people. It's John Donne's, of course, famous poem where he cites, No Man is an Island. And uh, I, I do like um, the quote that, unless his name is Madagascar but, or Tasmania, but, um, we, we're not, we are, part of being human is that we are societal animals. And I think that has implications in terms of friendship. Uh, the other talk I was thinking of giving was about friendship because I think we undervalue friendship. I think what we've done with friendship is, at one extreme, we've turned it into Facebook friends. You know, um, uh, there are people who... I, I just don't understand how people get so emotional on the internet, but they do get very, very emotional on the internet. And uh, as the psychologist Jonathan Haidt said, the, the, the worst invention of the 20th century, the late 20th century, was the like button um, because he said it's just driving people crazy. But I think on the one hand, we've got that. We've got this kind of virtual thing uh, where we live in a virtual world, which is an unreal world. And then on the other hand, we've got friendships, if you like, that become so intense and, and they become harmful and do wrong. But all of us, it intrigues me that Jesus didn't need a wife, but he did need friends. And in fact, when people go, oh, Jesus loves everyone equally, I would say, yeah, but be very careful about that. I'm not sure that that's true. In fact, I'm certain that's not true. Um, Jesus had three disciples who were particularly close to him one of whom is referred to as the one whom he loved. Didn't he love the others? Well, he did. But he just had a special connection and bond with that person. Um, This may seem strange to you, but since I've come to Australia, I think I found more friends than I had in Scotland because I found some people, uh, three or four individual people who I really, really connect with. And that's been a great blessing to me and uh, uh, to my wife. We were talking about that um, last night. And it's just taught me, again, the supreme value of friendship. Friends are not just work colleagues. Friends are not just people who you can network with. Um, Friends are people who you are really committed to. 
So I think marriage is one of those is one of those relationship things, one of those social things, and I think um, friendship is another. I would also add to that what I just call in general companionship. So it's interesting the Marlowe's coffee shop just uh, near where CBF is. I, I I go in there quite a lot, so you can tell how often I go in because the owner doesn't even bother to take an order now. He just brings me uh, the usual. And he was sitting down talking to me, and he said, you know, after decades, we're probably going to have to close. And I said, can you not ride this out with government help? He says, that's not the issue. I said, what's the issue? He said, companies are going to work out. Hey, our staff can work from home. We don't need expensive offices in the CBD. And he said, this is going to change things. He said, I think this will happen. And I said to him, well, can I offer you a slightly alternative perspective? Companies may think like that for a while, but a lot of people will find that working at home makes them less productive rather than more because we actually do need to be working with people. And saying you're doing it online isn't exactly the same as being with people. Um, I think that's the same with teaching. I think it's the same in education. I think it's the same with um, church meetings. You know, in theory, no Christian needs to go to church, do we, if we say, well, you, you, you it's about being taught the Bible and pray in the presence of God, and God is everywhere. And here, by the way, is another implication of this current crisis. I accept that the churches have to obey the government, but I think there are far too many uh, church leaders who are thinking, this is great. We'll do virtual church and everything will be fine. In fact, it might even be better. I, I did a show for um, Vision Radio yesterday, and they had a poll, and two-thirds of, of the people who polled said, oh, this is going to make church a whole lot better. And I just thought, no, you, you, that's Aussie optimism. That's not biblical realism. Um, I, I, I wonder ab- about all of this. I just think of the sad. And there's nobody sadder than some of the people I argue with on the Internet. And I've told you many times, don't argue with people on the Internet. Don't do as I do. But you, you just envisage them, and they usually are. Sad, lonely men locked in a bedroom who hardly ever get out. I remember one guy, I actually went to meet him. He told me he hadn't left his flat in 15 years. Everything was ordered in. You know, technically, you don't need to do You don't need to leave. He said he didn't like people. He didn't want to talk to people. As you can imagine, he was profoundly psychologically disturbed. So we've got marriage as a, a social relationship. We've got friendship as a social relationship. I would say we've got what I would call comradeship or possibly even mateship. I, I don't want to use an Aussie word, but... Um, that might be another aspect. There's societal interaction all the time. I do think it makes a difference um, buying uh, a newspaper or something from someone who you see every day. I mean, I'll give you one, just one example of, of a different kind of societal connection. So occasionally I like to buy my wife flowers. And one day I forgot. It, was some, it wasn't our anniversary. I never forget our anniversary. She does, but I never do. Um, and I thought, oh, I need to get her some flowers. And it was too late to go into Flora, which is what I normally do. It's great. Click on a button, arrives the next day. So there was a flower shop five minutes down from our church, and I went in, and the woman's there, and she's sitting up with her leg in what we call a stuki, which is for a broken leg, big bandage. And I said to her, I'm looking for some flowers. And she said, "Uh uh-huh, you're in a flower shop. So this is a a good start. I said, what would you like? I said, I I know this is going to sound really bad, but nice ones? (laughs) I said, I don't really know. I don't know anything about flowers. She said, okay, for your wife? I said, yes. I said, how much do you want to spend? I said, I don't know. 
um, as little as possible, but as much as makes me appear generous. And she said, okay, I, okay, I've got you. She said, go away for 15 minutes, then come back. So I went away, and 15 minutes I came back, and she'd made up this wonderful bunch of flowers, and it was a reasonable price. And I said, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And she said, you're the minister from the church up the road, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. She said, that's a great church. And I thought, okay, um, have you ever been? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I go, I go into the building to Weight Watchers. And at that point, my, my, I, had, I bridled my tongue, which was wonderful, because I, I almost said, I can see why, but, <laughs> which, which would, not, would not have been helpful. <coughs> but she, and I said, she said, but that's not what I mean. She said, I've, I've seen inside the main building, because the Weight Watchers were held in the hall, and she said, it's lovely, it's beautiful. She said, but that's not what I mean. I said, what do you mean? She said, I think you people are great. She said, I don't go to church, but if I ever went to church, I would come to your church because of what you do in this community. And I went away from there. And rather than being encouraged by that, I, I, I was so angry at myself. I felt that small. Why? Because I'd been there 10 years. I'd never been in her shop. You know, why? Personal convenience. And I just made a vow. There's a... Um, Steve Timmis used this phrase, gospel intentionality. And I just thought, I'm never buying flowers. Locally, anyway, from my mother way up north, fine. But I'm never buying flowers without going into that lady. I don't care if she's more expensive. And then I decided, same with the newspaper. I'm going to go into the same shop. Same with the coffee places. We had an American missionary come to us, and he he said, you know, this is how we do evangelism. I said, no, it's not how you do evangelism. He said, what do you mean? I said, don't, you can't do it with a program here. He said, you have to get to know people. He said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, very simple. On this street where the church is, there are 15 coffee shops. If in a year's time I walk into any of these shops with you and you are not greeted by name and you do not know all the staff, you're fired. And he looked at me and he said, you want to drink coffee? You want me to drink coffee for Jesus? I said, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. Oh, man, that's my dream job. <laughs> I says, well, well, well I says, you've just got it. Just make sure you do it well. But, but you know this, it was wonderful. I, I went to a, um, believe it or not, there was a shop that just did fireplaces. And I went to the fireplace guy, I don't know what you call him. And, and he said, are you from the church? And I said, yeah, how did you know that? He said, that American guy, John, he said, he used to come in and see me all the time. He says, what a great guy. And I thought, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's what community... So let me finish this by saying, as we go into this particular crisis, um, isn't it sad that almost inevitably... The rise, there'll be a massive spike in domestic violence, which I find incredibly sad. Isn't it sad that there will be a big increase in suicide because of loneliness and depression? Isn't it sad that you'll find some people who are Christians thinking, do you know this, I just want to give up because they're not being supported and encouraged? Isn't it sad that Six of the staff here have already been laid off. Think of them at home. You know, uh, it's not just people, all these different things, you know. And I think that what we need to do and think about is how do we create a society in which people connect as Genesis 1 said that we should do? Um, I, I suspect, well, I don't suspect, I know that the Bible has great wisdom for our society and all of that. Read through Proverbs. Read through Ephesians. Read even about, uh, you know, uh, about Jesus. And I think we've got a great message for people of hope. It's not just about our relationship with God. It's also our relationship with other people. God made us 
societal and sexual beings, I think our culture thinks largely only in terms of the sexual. I think we need to think a whole lot more in terms of the societal. Okay, we'll leave it there and see if there's any questions or discussions. Okay, um, what is your suggestion about how Christians can keep meeting in the city in the coming months? Well, you know, of course we can. You know, one of the things about, I think about this, I mean, my, I just kind of made, I I spoke to the guy from Marlos and I said, all right, as far as I can afford it, I'm just going to come down here every single day. And, and have a coffee or even have my lunch. Maybe I, you know, I'm just going to do it. Uh, that's, for me, even us meeting here, it's a little bit accustomed for the restaurant. You know, I just think we need to, we need to balance different things. Um, there will come a point, I mean, my view is that we should follow the government, the government's guidelines. I think there's a reason that the government have said groups of less than 100. It's not a problem that we have at the moment. Um, and the reason for that is very, very straightforward. This is going to last six months. You're seriously going to go six months without meeting up with people. What's going to happen is people are going to go stir crazy and they're going to break all the rules with stuff. My view was we, you need to work out a managed way of doing things. Uh, I mean, my, my being here with you right now, I don't think I'm any more risk from infection than going to Woolies. I'm not going to stop going to buy food, but you're much more likely to get an infection there. You know, no matter how many times you wipe down the trolleys with it, you know, if, if, if that's what the concern is, I think our primary concern is passing it on. I'm not going to pass it on to you. If people need to get some information about all of, uh, you know, how we actually do this stuff and how it gets passed on. So I, I, I think there's plenty of scope for people meeting. Uh, it's probably not wise to, well, we're not allowed to meet in a group of over 100, but we're not really in that danger. So there's, I, I would suggest you can meet basically as normal. Should it matter whether or not our closest friends are Christians or not? Um, No, it shouldn't. Um, I would want all my closest friends to be Christians, purely and simply because I want them to become Christians. But I don't choose friends because they're Christians. I don't... uh, I mean, as you get older, you know, you find that more of your friends either become Christians or dump you in some way or other. Um, so you almost, you, you almost inevitably end up with that. But some of my closest friends are not Christians. I'd want them to become Christians because I'm concerned about them. Um, I would not... To be honest, there are non-Christians who I like a whole lot better than some Christians. So, yes? That, exactly. Exactly. Although... Pretty quickly, you know, come follow me. Uh, you know, there were some. I. I mean, I'd I'd be a little bit disturbed if I was a Christian and none of my friends weren't Christians. Uh, I, I'm talking after, you know, after a period of time. Um, I don't know things you've got in common with people, and that's again with the marriage idea of things. I mean, I would always say to our young people, if you're going to marry someone, make sure you have some things in common. That's a fairly good idea. And also make sure you have some things different. But you want the most important things in common. So we would talk about issues like, well, I want children and she doesn't. Okay, this is not good. Um, she wants to be a billionaire and get lots of jewels. I'm quite happy living in poverty. All right, I think you're going to have major difficulties there. And then um, I worship Jesus. I go to church. I pray. I read. She hates it. Okay, I th- that's a bad idea in lots and lots and lots of different ways. So, 
I think the answer to the question is no, it doesn't matter. Um, but the question is much more wider than that. Um, I would be concerned if I had no non-Christian friends, and I would be concerned if I had no Christian friends. Um, actually, I'm concerned that I have any friends at all. Uh, if God is sovereign, should we not welcome change and pray for wisdom in using new and novel opportunities to evangelize and glorify God? Yeah, the God is sovereignty thing always comes up. I mean, I'm a uh, what they call a Calvinist, I guess. I strongly believe in the sovereignty of God. But the sovereignty of God does not make me welcome things that are bad and does not make me welcome things that are harm. And sometimes that can come across as incredibly callous. So as I said, when I was in hospital, if anyone had gone to my wife and said, well, God is sovereign, this is going to be a blessing, she should have slapped them. You know, that's just callous and cruel. Um, Yes, this could be an opportunity for new and novel opportunities, or it could be the destruction of the church. Don't, we, we shouldn't presuppose that all this is just going to work out fine. Um, the church in Turkey disappeared. The strongest church in the world in the 6th century was in North Africa. It largely disappeared. What's happening in the UK at the moment suggests to me that the church is largely uh, disappearing. That will happen. I think it resurrects and grows in other places. But this kind of assumption, well, God is sovereign, so everything will work out for good. In the long term, yes, but in the, in the immediate and short term, nobody would look at our house on fire and say, well, this will be an opportunity to rebuild as it's burning down. Um, I think there would be something wrong with you. Later on, you may realize, okay, we got an opportunity to rebuild, but we're human and we, well, there's a lot of things we do not know. Um, a novel opportunity to evangelize and glorify God. Well, that's interesting because as I came in, I got an email from somebody saying, David, our church, all our churches are doing right now is thinking of how they hunker down and how they provide pastoral care and online services for those who are already coming. What about those who we don't know? And so I wrote back to her and said, give me two days and we'll come up with something for you. So Rob Martin is here. Um, we, we're going to be talking about this later. I, I do think there is an opportunity I don't think it is primarily an opportunity to add to the ever-increasing screeds of information on, on, the, on the web. I think we can use that, but I think there's an opportunity to com- communicate um, the good news. If we're all social beings and God gave Adam a helper to be connected to someone, why does it have to be specifically a woman and not just another man? <laughs> I was so tempted. Um, Do you know, because difference works, I think you do get male relationships that are far closer than many male-female relationships. I do think David and Jonathan, I don't think it was a sexual or homosexual relationship in any way whatsoever, but it was a really deep relationship. Your, your love was deeper to me than the love of women. He, he, you know, it was the statement. I think Jesus had very close male friendships. So... I, I, I think actually that is missing from a lot of uh, men's lives. But in terms of having a lifelong partner who's going to help you procreate and keep humanity going, it's not going to be someone of the same sex. So I, I, I think these are two different things. Um, I do say this, I mean... Not now, but a lot of young people used to come to me and ask advice about marriage and stuff. 
And I, used, I, did, I often said to them, please don't marry someone who isn't or isn't likely to be your best friend in some ways because you're going to have to live together and once the romance wears off and the dirty socks kicking and everything else, it, you know, you, you're going to go through some ups and downs and you need someone who's going to be a really good companion as well. But, you know, I know, um, I remember two women came to my church and, you know, they, they said that they were in a same-sex relationship and we talked about it for a while. And it turned out that they weren't interested in sex at all. They just liked being with each other and companionship. And I, I, for me, I just, that's the way that for some people it will work. And I don't see any particular problem in that. Um, yeah, it's, that's an interesting question. Because what do you do if somebody says, and this has happened as well, again, often a younger person, and sometimes a younger woman, like for example in Japan, if you're not married by the time you're 30, you're an absolute failure as a woman. And I think it's a mistake to imply that every single person should get married or somehow they've failed. Um, sometimes I've met, I remember meeting with one young woman and saying to her, well, you've got two problems. Number one, you're so desperate to get married that no man's going to go near you, at least not one that you would want. So I said, first of all, you've got to get rid of the desperation because you're going to scare everyone off. And secondly, it's for the wrong reason. You know, it's not good to be alone. It is good to want companionship and all the rest of it. But you're thinking that a man is going to bring you ultimate happiness and he's not. Uh, and I said, there's one thing absolutely worse than not being married. And she said, what's that? And I said, being married to the wrong person. I said, that's a nightmare. And from a Christian point of view, it's a life sentence. And I said, it can happen. It does happen. So just be very careful in what you wish for. Um, but yeah, I guess that's a separate issue. You guys over here, anything? No, oh, okay. Oh, I've answered them all. Anyone else want to say anything before we go? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, the Muslim country, let me say about the strong sexual ethic in the Muslim country. I don't think, oh, sorry, have there been any countries where, or empires that have survived by, by having a good sexual ethic? Um, two things. Number one, it's not just sexual ethic, obviously. There are other ethics and things involved as well. Um, I, I, for example, the gap between rich and poor and so on. Uh, injustice within a society, the breakdown of law. Um, you, you're not going to have a good society with the breakdown of, of law. But... Uh, on, on the particular Muslim question, um, apart from other, other aspects of it, I'm not convinced about the sexual ethic. So when ISIS, for example, you think, well, how could you be such serious Muslims and yet rape women? Well, but that's because they're unbelievers and they can just be used. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I would not agree that Islam has a particularly great sexual ethic. Uh, I think if you read the Quran, I think Muhammad's sexual ethic was appalling. I mean, he married a 12-year-old. And uh, there are other factors involved in that as well. So I wouldn't necessarily hold to that. And I think what you found in, in Islamic states, insofar as they've existed, they tend to be extremely authoritarian. And they, don't, they really actually do not last for long. I think there have been countries and cultures that have flourished by holding to largely a biblical ethic. I would say the, the rise of the West. Um, there was a oh the, the historian, I can't remember his name, Neil. Oh, I can't remember his second name. 
did a series called Civilization, and he was contrasting. He was saying, why was Western civilization, why was the West so predominant for a thousand years? And he, he talked about technology and including military and other things. But one aspect was the rule of law, and the other aspect, he said, was Christianity. And it is interesting. In, in, in China just now, they're trying to develop an ethic, which is largely a Christian ethic, but they're calling it the communist one and trying to suppress the church. So I, every society has flaws and has things that are wrong and are rotten. But I'm absolutely certain that it, there are certain things, if we go down that route, we destroy ourselves. And my, my belief is, if we continue to go down the route of the sexual ethic that was advanced in the late 1960s, is now known largely as queer theory, we will destroy this culture. Absolutely. And I, but I would say there are other factors involved in that as well. But, you know, thank you. That's a really good question. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.